0: The FT.
1: In this week's show, BP results, its plans for the future, and the dilemma of big oil.
2: BP will be smaller, it will aim to grow more quickly. I think there will be a focus to say it is going to be a pure upstream company with less downstream exposure.
1: Boardroom shake up at Glencore.
3: I'm told that Glencore has been talking to a broad spectrum, a very large number, as a one insider put to me. And one of the names that have been mentioned has been Tony Hayward. We know from the company, insiders in the company, and from friends of Tony Hayward that he has been approached.
1: A new nuclear in the UK.
0: People are pretty supportive of having a new nuclear power station at Hinkley Point. Local surveys suggest roughly two-thirds of the people support the project.
1: Joining me in the studio this week are the FT's energy correspondent David Blair and Commodities Editor, Javier Blas. You're listening to Energy Weekly with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. We start this week, as usual, back with BP. Bob Dudley, the company's new chief executive, will present not just the company's fourth quarter results next Tuesday, but also a strategy update to investors. It's a big day for him, and he needs to have a credible recovery story to present. Joining me on the line to discuss Bob Dudley's plans is Teepan Pan Jothi-Lingham, all and gas analyst from Morgan Stanley. T-Pan, perhaps we can start by focusing on the numbers. The market's already expecting Bob Dudley to resume paying a dividend to shareholders, albeit at about half its previous level. What are you expecting for the fourth quarter and for the full year just in terms of profits?
2: For the fourth quarter, um, we're forecasting about $4.7 billion. I think consensus is a little bit higher at $4.9 billion. That is the underlying number. I think in terms of the provision for Macondo, we're not expecting any surprise or a significant increase given BP raised that provision by more or less $40 billion in Q3. I think some of the key features will be a lower volume number for the fourth quarter. That's going to incorporate both increased maintenance but also the full impact from the uh, disposal programme. So I think volumes for the quarter will be about 3.6 million barrels and that's going to be down 10% year on year and 3% down quarter on quarter.
1: It's a very big day for Dudley next Tuesday because he's also giving a strategy update to investors. What are you expecting him to say there?
2: I think the key feature of Bob Dudley's inaugural presentation to to the market will be building confidence with investors. Remember, this is a new management team. I think not many institutions outside the UK have met Bob Dudley. They certainly haven't met the new management team in EMP. So I think it's more going to be about delivery rather than substance. I don't think there's going to be any new fireworks necessarily. I think in the downstream, Ian Con, very well regarded by the market, is going to provide confidence that the restructuring and high grading of the US downstream portfolio continues. Now, in terms of strategy, I think uh, clearly the key issue is how bp does redefine itself post macondo now there has been a further move into russia with the recent rosneft alliance but i think that there will be a message There are not going to be too many big changes from what's been already disclosed bp will be smaller it will aim to grow more quickly i think there will be a focus to say that it is going to be a pure upstream company with less downstream exposure I think some of the key areas that the market will look for will be what progress can be made in the Gulf of Mexico in 2011. And more importantly, where the Russian deal fits into the overall portfolio and how we're doing in Iraq.
1: You don't expect them to sell out of downstream in any big way? Well, no.
2: When you look back at BP, it has made a number of disposals over the last decade in the downstream, particularly in Europe. I think in the U.S. in particular, I think they'll use some of that high-quality downstream portfolio to start to accelerate progress. I think BP will send a message that they intend to very much remain both in the Gulf of Mexico as well as extending out the relationship with Rosneft. In terms of the Gulf, I think what is reassuring is there is a recognition here that activity in the Gulf of Mexico needs to return. Otherwise, we start to see production in that basin decline Clearly, from a political perspective, I think that would put further pressure on the US administration, given the oil price environment we're in, and the increasing cost of of imports. So I think what the message will be is that the Gulf of Mexico remains a core part of the strategy, albeit that BP has plenty of options outside the Gulf to grow over the next decade.
1: Just one final question. All the majors are expected to be spending a lot on uh, capital investment over the coming 12 months. Isn't that one of the the problems at the moment, That is that that these big oil majors are spending a lot of money, investing a lot of money, but is that doing much in terms of boosting their production growth? I just wondered, finally, what your views on, on big oil is. Is BP a bit of a guinea pig as to what some of these other companies should be doing?
2: I think BP and, and others have have set a template. I don't think necessarily size is justifying a premium multiple in, in, for in equity markets today. Uh, we have outlined uh, uh, last year a four point plan where we see that restructuring high-grading upstream portfolios is a way to unlock uh, unlock and, and monetize value in big oil portfolios. And I think you've seen both in the US and in Europe examples of that. In Europe, BP has shown a template in terms of the asset disposal program. I think there was great concern that they were going to be selling their crown jewels, selling off significant cash flow. That's not been the case. I think they've generated uh, price to book of over two and a half times and price to market NAVs north of one and a half times so they have unlocked value. Clearly we're now seeing from the super majors big or that the market does re-rate companies that have big exploration programs and I think there will be more spend on exploration to underpin that logic for growth. So I think the opportunity is there. I think the management teams that are braver and bolder in terms of executing are likely to see those share prices re-rated by investors.
1: Thank you very much Chief Han. From Bob Dudley to his predecessor B.P. Tony Hayward, and the looming board shakeup at Swiss-based trading house Glencore. Javier Hayward is being lined up as a possible non-executive director at Glencore once it floats. Can you bring us up to speed with what we think is going on at Glencore?
3: Well, Glencore is right now at a private company owned by the by the partners in 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 the trading house, and obviously it is walking towards a, a, becoming a public company, most likely through an IPO in London, possibly also with a dual listing in Hong Kong. When that happens, it's going to need a new board with independent non-executives. And obviously, they are talking to a number of people on the market to get those non-execs as directors. I'm told that Glencore has been talking to a broad spectrum, a very large number, as one insider put to me. And one of the names that have been mentioned has been Tony Hayward. We know from the company, insiders in the company, and from friends of Tony Hayward that he has been approached. Ivan Glassenberg, the chief executive of Glencore, recently told to him, and he's thinking about it. He has different opportunities, but obviously, Glencore is one one of those uh, names and natural resources that it is just one of those companies that they are symbolic of commodities.
1: be quite a nice comeback for, for, for Tony Hayward, obviously, on the back of the um, Gulf of Mexico spill. Uh, but Glencore is also one of those names that's, that's been around for a long time. How big a deal will be the float? Probably
3: will be the biggest IPO of the year. The valuation of Glencore, the only publicly available uh, valuation that we have, is $35 billion uh, back in June two, uh, July 2009. But obviously since then the market has improved significantly. We were at the depths of the financial crisis back then and now bankers are telling me that a number could be between 50 and $60 billion. I believe that the management of Glencore will prefer to see a six on something above $60 billion as as the base for the valuation. And we have now a way to compare. Cargill, the world's largest agricultural trader based in the US, also a privately held company, recently did an operation who offer the first insight of what the valuation of Cargill is. And according to this insight that the company offered to us for the first time, Cargill valuation is about $50 billion. So that offers a floor for the valuation of Glencore. So bankers are talking now 50 to $60 billion. Uh, obviously for some of the investors in Glencore um, through a convertible bond back in 2009. That will mean that over a year and a half, they will almost double their investment. So a very nice return.
1: What does this mean for Extrata? Uh, for
3: sure, uh, Glencore controls 34% of Extrata, the London-listed miner. So... Uh, it- Anything that happens to Glencore is going to affect somehow uh, Estrata. One option is that Glencore, at the end of the day, decides not to IPO, but decides to try a merger with Strata. That combination has been, until now, impossible because there was a disagreement between the management of Glencore and the management of Strata about the valuation of the trading house. But now that the market seems to be heading to a valuation of 50 to $60 billion, they may be a point where the two companies could start talking again. The other question is a public Glencore will probably at some point, particularly gets a high valuation of the 50 to 60 billion dollars, try a merger with the Strata as a, as a second step. So I think that the Glencore Strata story is not going to end with the flotation of Glencore, but will continue at least for 12 to 18 months.
1: Is there any significance? Because there was some suggestion that the chairman of Glencore, who is also chairman of Extratas is going to step down. And why is he stepping down from both boards? It just seems slightly strange to me.
3: Well, uh, he he was a company fundamental in the in the in in the foundation of Glencore as a company after after Ridge. So he is very closely linked to Glencore. So uh, it appears that Strata management doesn't want to have a Glencore insider in the board at the same time he's going to be a very significant shareholder still in in Glencore so in in that in that sense uh, it will be inappropriate for him to remain a a chairman of strata
1: finally what's your betting on the timing of the float
3: Well, I think that we will know a lot more about the timing in in, uh, about the first half of March. Traditionally, Glencore published their financial results in the second week of March. So I will expect an announcement there. And then I think that the the IPO could happen anywhere between April and, and May, maybe early June. If the market conditions are not right at that point because of this turbulence related to credit markets or whatever in the in the global economy, I believe that uh, Glencore has a second window later on the year, late September to early October.
1: Thanks very much Javi and so a final topic for today developments in nuclear power in the UK. David, you've just come back from visiting Hinkley Point in Somerset, where the UK's first new reactor is going to be built for several years. What's the mood like amongst the locals?
0: In general terms, people in that part of England are pretty supportive of having a new nuclear power station at Hinkley Point. Local surveys suggest roughly two-thirds of the people who live near Hinkley Point support the project. But there are specific concerns, particularly over traffic congestion. If you drive to Hinkley Point, you're struck by how you reach it along narrow country lanes. And in the next few months, the preliminary earthworks for the construction of a new reactor at the sea site are going to begin. And that means that an awful lot of lorries are going to be thundering along those rather pretty uh, country lanes. And a lot of people are worried about that. But there's very little debate over the principle of building a new uh, nuclear power station.
1: And, and you went to the site, did you not, with, with Chris Hewitt, the energy minister. And what was his, his view on nuclear? Because he, prior to becoming a, m- a member of the government, he, he, wasn't, he was opposed to new nuclear. Is that right?
0: Yes. He said very clearly that he did not feel that nuclear power had a part to play in the energy mix of this country. However, the coalition agreement makes it very clear that they do believe uh, that a new generation of nuclear power stations are necessary. Uh, And Chris Hewn supports that policy. The way he explains himself is he says that his original objection was based upon the economics of nuclear power and he wasn't convinced that it was commercially viable. Now, however, private sector companies are saying that they are prepared to build new nuclear power stations without any public subsidy and Chris Hune is prepared to support them on that basis. The point he always underlines is that he's not prepared to subsidise nuclear power with public money, either in the construction phase or the operating phase, or perhaps most importantly of all, in the decommissioning and waste reprocessing phase, which occurs at the very end of the reactor's life cycle.
1: The first reactor is going to be built by a um, consortium of EDF Energy of France and Centrica, the UK utility. And Vincent de Rivas, the chief executive of EDF Energy, I think was also um, at the site when you were there. What's his biggest concern as he sort of looks at this massive um, construction project?
0: He thinks that the government's electricity market reforms announced last month give him what he needs to make this commercially viable and to convince the EDF board to make the final investment decision. But he needs them to be implemented. At the moment, they're merely at the drafting stage. They're merely proposals. He wants them to be translated into a formal white paper and then for the white paper to be translated into a bill which goes through Parliament all this year.
1: Um, no, thank you very much. And you can read more about the story in the paper later on this week from, from David Blair. Thanks very much. And that's all we have time for today. All that's left is for me to thank my guests, T-Pan Lingham, Javi Blas and David Blair. Energy Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Sylvia Pfeiffer. Until next week, goodbye.
0: For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.